Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week we're very pleased to have Norman Stone on the show, and we'll be talking about his new book, World War I, A Short History. I remember that when I was in high school, I didn't like to study very much. I don't suppose I'm unique in that way. And one of the things I particularly did not like to do was read books. But I recall distinctly the first time I encountered the book All's Quiet on the Western Front. I'm sure you're familiar with it. And I remember sitting in class while the teachers were going on and on about something or other. Of course, I don't remember what. Reading this book, I just kind of sat in the back of the class and hid. This book made a very powerful impression on me. And and since those days so long ago, I've been very interested in the First World War. So it was with great pleasure that I learned that Norman Stone, who is an expert on the war, had written this terrific short book. If you want an introduction to the war. You really can't do better than Norman Stone's treatment. The book is pithy. It is funny in places. It is tragic in other places. And it has the great virtue of brevity. Norman has real voice. It's something that a lot of historians attempt, but Norman has it in spades. This book is tremendously entertaining to read, whether you know anything about World War I or not. You can read it in a sitting and I strongly suggest that you do. Uh, As you can see, I really enjoyed talking to Norman today, and I hope that you enjoy the interview. Here it is. Hi, Norman. Hello. Uh, How are you today? Oh, could be worse. Yeah, could be worse. Yeah, me too. Uh, You're in Turkey, of course. Where in Turkey are you exactly? I'm I'm in Ankara. Ankara. uh, I travel between here and Istanbul. Is that right? Yes. No, Ankara, that's sort of in the center of Turkey, is it not? Pretty well, yes. Yeah, it is. I'm, yeah yes. My, my ignorance of uh, you could write books about my ignorance of Turkey. Anyway, I should tell our um, our listeners today that we're very pleased to have Norman Stone on the show, and we'll be talking about his terrific new book and a very punchy book, I should say, uh, World War One: uh, A Short History, which has just been released here in the United States. Um, I, as as you all know who are listening to the show, I've read the book. I, I think it's absolutely terrific. Norman has. Uh, something that many historians do not, and that is voice. Uh, I know that a lot of us um, try uh, to write with voice, but um, it's, it's a difficult thing for historians to do, uh, particularly in the era of mad empiricism. <laughs> but Norman actually has terrific voice in this book, and it's it's a wonderful read for anybody who's uh, interested in World War One, and I certainly am myself. Um, Norman, if I could... Um, just ask you to say a few words about yourself before we uh, start our discussion of the book. Well, now, where do I start? Um, <laughs> it's a funny thing, you know, you, the older you get, the more you go back to your beginnings. And um, I'm, I'm originally a Scotsman, born in Glasgow in 1941, actually in the, in, the, in the week that the Germans bombed Glasgow. I think I was born slightly prematurely because of that. And, uh, you know, I grew up in Glasgow, and I suppose it was the last days when it was the great imperial city. 
And um, we were all sort of trained in in, uh, in Glasgow at that time, BDI, to contemplate um, scholarships in uh, in Cambridge. And I was very, very well trained for that uh, by a genius of a schoolmaster who um, who produced sort of you know kind of BDI scholarship candidates in boxes of a hundred. <laughs> and to this day, I can still remember weird French words which uh, we were trained to use, which absolutely floored the examiners. So we all trooped into Cambridge, and uh, and I was bored with languages after a bit. And, which I think was probably my fault. I couldn't really handle the sort of literary criticism that was done. And I was always really a historian, and so I, I switched to history and uh, and started off, um, you know, when I, when I graduated, I, I went off to Vienna and Budapest because I'd rather fallen in love with Central Europe. And, and uh, so I lived in Vienna for three years. It wasn't a very, very happy time or indeed at all productive. And you know, I began to get, I'm afraid to say, what might be described as the Adolf Hitler Prize for putting cyanide in the water supply. I hated that city mm-hmm. and much preferred Budapest, which even then, though it was a communist place, was, was far livelier. And then I got a research fellowship in Cambridge in 65, and... Um, and uh, I can remember going back in the in the train. It was a 24-hour journey in those days, and thinking, well, you know, I can't really do Central Europe. It's too difficult, and and um, uh, it's either Russia or Germany. And a happy choice got me to learn Russian. Mm-hmm. So I then started writing about um, the Russian front in the First World War. It took me a long time to do it, but I eventually did it, and then got myself established on the Cambridge ladder. Mm-hmm. And, and started writing more generally about Germany and uh, and and late 19th century Europe. Mm-hmm. And then they gave me the um, the job as uh, as a professor of modern history in Oxford. Mm-hmm. Richard Cobb, who was the great historian of the French Revolution, was a was a close friend of mine. And uh, he said, "You want my succession?" And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, I, so I said, "Well, yes. Why not?" And, yeah. um, so moved over to Oxford, but it, uh, it's, uh, to be frank, it's very, very difficult doing modern European history in, um, in Oxford. They're terribly good on English history and terribly good on classical subjects, things like that. Mm-hmm. But modern European history was not terribly well sorted out, and uh, not as well as in Cambridge. I mean, the record of Cambridge at the moment in terms of uh, modern European history is spiffing. Mm-hmm. The present Regis professor is a man called Tim Blanning, who wrote a book on um, for Penguin called The Pursuit of Power, which is about the 18th and 19th century. And mm-hmm. it, it, um, it asks the question, why did Germany go wrong and what has it to do with France? It's a spiffing book. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I, I just took early retirement from Oxford and uh, came to Turkey more or less by chance. It's, mm-hmm. I'd been, I got very, very angry about what was happening in Bosnia. Mm-hmm. I was writing about it fairly energetically in the in the English press, and the Turks noticed it, and held a conference in this university, Bill Kent, and I arrived, and uh, and, and I, I liked Turkey from the moment go. You know, you arrive at that airport, you see a, a policeman in a black uniform with a with a, with a black moustache and a very grim expression, smoking ferociously under a, under a sign saying strictly no smoking. I thought, <laughs> I spoke. I mean, I've been very, very happy here for the last, I suppose, 14 years now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's going back to England a lot, but it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a wonderful thing to, to have in your middle 50s when you can find an entirely new horizon like this.
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that's a terrific story, and I, I admire you for you know kind of keeping vital in that sense, moving on to a new country. That's yeah, I, I sort of dream that I'll do something like that one of these days. As as my, <laughs> well, there's a lot uh, to be said for it. Well, I have you know, I have, I have, I have, I have, I have kids that I have to uh, yeah. tend to. There, I, there are actually there, I, are I, a lot, there, are, there are a lot of Americans in Turkey. I know, I know, I have a lot of friends who love it there. They're, I mean, they're the best foreigners. I noticed this with the students who come here. They learn the language. Mm-hmm. They fit in terribly yeah. well. It's it's quite a it's quite an impressive performance. Well, I will. Whereas I'm afraid you know the British have become awfully sort of insular and mm-hmm. the type that go down to the kebab van and equip themselves with their passports and their helmets. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, you know, again, I, I come from sort of provinces of the United States, and I, and I know that many of my colleagues do as well. And we're very uh, big on learning foreign languages and traveling abroad. I've lived abroad, and um, yeah, I mean, I think the notion that Americans, many Americans, are insular is that is not a sort of very cosmopolitan. It's, it's, it's wrong-headed. Uh, yeah, it's, that's. Totally I came wrong. across a very good statistic about the Marshall Plan the other day that there were about three and a half thousand jobs were were made available in sort of forty-eight to that sort of period. They got fifty-five thousand applicants. Wow. Yeah. yeah, no, that's remarkable. No, we, uh, yeah, we, uh, we are always on the move. Americans are always on the move. So let me ask you this question: How did how did you come to write this book? Um, well, it was, I mean, it was simply a, it was simply a, a commissioned idea. The, it was uh, originally. I mean, I must be frank. It was Random House originally, mm-hmm. and uh, they have a they have a series which and they sent me they sent me a, a box load of, of the books published in it. And the idea is, is, is sort of, you know, short, short books on big subjects. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, uh, some of them were wonderful. I mean, Paul Johnson's thing on the Renaissance, I remember reading on the bus between Ankara and Istanbul. Mm-hmm. Terrific. And then there's Gordon Woods on the American Revolution where, you know, you even admire his punctuation. It's, <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a superb little book about... Um, about a subject which is, of course, obviously enormously important, but which I didn't know too much about. And I was originally booked to, um, you know, booked into that, and I, I sent in my 40,000 words. And, uh, well, I mean, I must be frank with you. Um, the, uh, I seem to have made enemies of the diaspora Armenians mm-hmm. because, uh, you know, I've, um, I mean, it's not that, you know, it's not that I'm rampagingly pro-Turkish or anything, but... Uh, I think there is a. I'm not convinced by the story of the genocide mm-hmm. massacres, unquestionably. Mm-hmm. But uh, but uh, there was a bit of sort of mutual massacre going on, and the Armenian nationalists were not, I think, absolutely guiltless. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I'd uh, I'd been seeing this sort of thing. I'd been terribly rude about uh, some silly book that appeared in the states about um, about the whole thing. I mean, it's just for me, a little rubbishy book. And they obviously had the knife out for me, and, and they'd wormed themselves into the, uh, you know, the uh, sort of peer review stuff. Mm-hmm. So a report came back on the manuscript saying that the book was sloppily written, mm-hmm. that it was full of inaccuracies, and that I should have talked about refugee problems uh, much more. And they sat back and they said, well, you know, well, there we are. And I was, of course, you know, <laughs> I'm not an inaccurate historian. I mean, obviously one makes slips. But uh, I'm not an inaccurate historian. I knew the book wasn't uh, wasn't on that level. And luckily, luckily, um, my uh, my eldest son's agent then moved in, and she 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 read it and sold it to Penguin in 48 hours. And mm-hmm. then Basic Books bought it. And there are now 10 translations in the pipeline. 
So I think I can look myself in the mirror and say, well, you know, <laughs> mm. I didn't do too badly out of that yeah. one, but it was a nasty episode, frankly. Yeah. That was Random House, you say? I'm afraid it was. Yes, yes no, I, it's funny. I had a kind of run-in like that with them as well. Did you? <laughs> yes, I did. I cannot be specific about it, but uh, I, had a very, uh, I had a similar sort of thing happen with them. Yeah, I had a very similar sort of thing happen. Again, I can't be specific about it because uh, there may, yeah. be, may be lawyers involved at this point. But yes. uh, I had well, a very, well. very, very, very interesting experience with with uh, well, well, Random well. House. Yeah. So, well, uh, I think the um, I think the 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 it's 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 pretty much all champagne and pearls and caviar for the people at Penguin and um, and, <laughs> and basic because uh, yeah I can't imagine that there's a more read book about World War One than this book these days because it is that's splendid of you well it is but it's a really inter- you've done a really interesting thing here and there's you know a lot of people know quite a bit about World War One and I would say the same is true of World War Two uh, but there's uh, and so they're not so much interested in a detailed chronology of the event itself they're more interested in having someone who knows a lot about it speak intelligently about it and in almost a judgmental way um i remember i remember actually i was teaching i was teaching in ireland and i was reading the economist once and uh uh you know i was very deep into this kind of mindless empiricism that american historians are trained in i think i was working on a book that about the it was it it was a, a, a it was a statistical analysis of the boyard duma in the 17th century which came out eventually in two volumes that no one has ever I'm going to read it. Oh yeah, no, it's, no one will ever read it. So I was reading The Economist one day, and they were they were looking back. It was I think it was the year 2000, and they were looking back on the 20th century. And I remember the sentence very clearly. They said that um, all si- it was, the sentence went. I can't uh, I, I can't reproduce the sentence, but it was something like all sides on World War One fought the war like lunatics. And I thought, you know, I, it never occurred to me to use the word lunatics in in conjunction with World War One, but you know, there's something to that. There, there, you know, it really kind of opened my eyes to this 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 notion that it's not particularly a bad thing to look back and say, you know, there were some mistakes made here, that the people didn't behave properly. That you know, because this is this is you know, it's part of the historian's task to, you know, I guess to put it very strongly, to judge what what happened. And and I won't say that your book is judgmental, but there's a lot of very forceful statements about um, people's competencies and desires and goals and their and their um, their claims to have told the truth and their actual prevarication about various things. I, I want to start with one um, uh, with one thing that I learned in the book. I'm, I'm not really a student of World War One. Uh, World War Two is more of my bag. But one of the things that uh, I, I didn't know that is that the uh, historiography concerning the beginning of the war uh, has been completely overturned in the last 30 years. Um, I, you know, I, I had, I had, actually I was, I'm guilty of one of the errors that you cite here. And that is that when, when I teach and talk about World War I, I usually, uh, uh, I usually explain the war as a result of several um, very severe diplomatic misunderstandings and incidents. But that's not the way you describe the beginning of the war at all. You basically put it on the doorstep of the Germans. Maybe you could talk about that for a little bit. Yes, you know, I think if you think um, if you think back to the the, the German generation of, of around about 1900, I mean, they they shot ahead in about 30 years. It's the it's um, well, it is the great European civilization. It's it's. Uh, I mean, you you go to the University of Berlin for um, you know for pretty well anything, you know. I mean, there's a there's a. I mean, if you'll forgive me a little sort of footnote to this, there's a, there's a strange little um, little uh, side effect in England on this. Um, the the British didn't really believe in PhDs, and uh, 
they said, you know, if you want to write something, write a book or something. And uh, they, and it was in 1917 when there was a terrible dollar shortage. The Foreign Office said to Oxford and Cambridge, look, all those Americans will go back to Germany and do their doctorates there. Can't you set up a doctoral program uh, by way of diverting the dollars to, to England because we'll need them after the war? And Oxford and Cambridge hummed and hawed and had to be more or less forced into setting up a doctorate. And they um, they said, well, look, you know, it's going to cost you. It'll it'll cost you a grand sum of eight guineas <laughs> per um, you know per, uh, per 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 teacher per, per per term. And that was about that was about four times the average working wage at the time. In other words, the equivalent nowadays is something like twenty thousand dollars mm-hmm. <laughs> or something of that sort. Mm-hmm. And you know, the, the poor darlings, it stuck at eight guineas right up till today. Only now they take PAYE off it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you get sort of five pounds at the end of a term. <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway, back to the, the main theme. The, the Germans are, you know, you look at the uh, things like the, the response of the German professoriate to this war that was broken out in 1914. I mean, all their young students are being mown down. By uh, you know by British machine guns and the rest of it, uh, and there was a thing called the the petition of the intellectuals saying to the government that uh, this is absolutely the right thing to do, mm-hmm. and all thousand of them put their names down for it. Only Max Weber didn't, and I think somebody else. And that's the spirit of Germany at the t- at the time. Now, if you're looking at things from uh, the perspective of Berlin, you think, well, no. Um, Russia is a great savage place. It's got lots and lots of raw materials. We we ought to be able to take over that sort of place, as we did, after all, in the days of Catherine the Great. And you you know you you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. In the century, Russia was really run by Germans, mm-hmm. old Mayendorfs and von der Palens and whatnot, including mm-hmm. Catherine the Great herself, who mm-hmm. was the you know was from a principality the size of a small golf course, mm-hmm. and. Uh, <laughs> And um, then you say, well, you know, the Poles, what are the Poles? They're a really kind of useless, uh, useless, uh, you know, the Polish farm is a, is, is, a, is a description of a mess. The Czechs have got something, but they're really sort of half Germans if you scratch them. They're very close to the Saxons. The Hungarians are sort of allies anyway. And then there's the great prize at the other end of the Balkans, which is the Ottoman Empire. Which you can you can turn into a sort of Austro-German appendage, if you like. And it's very interesting living in that bit of uh, of Istanbul because I can identify where the old Austrian and German banks were mm-hmm. in um, just two or three streets down from the flat I got. Mm-hmm. And they're they're thinking very much of a, of, of a you know of a German empire, which will be a force for good, force for civilization. And it's uh, and what's getting in the way is this uh, this. Franco-Russian alliance and the, the prospect of a Russia getting too strong, so that Germany will be squeezed out in, in three or four years' time if they wait for the Russians to build up their strategic railways through French money. Mm-hmm. So they're casting about for something which will create a German Europe overnight, mm-hmm. not unlike the present European Union. Although of course it's a, it's a different ballgame altogether. I'm not. 
I'm, I'm not in any way anti-German over this. Although, by the way, I used to write speeches for Margaret Thatcher, mm-hmm. and, um, and I, I had a terrible time with her quite sometimes, saying, "Look, the Germans are not that bad. <laughs> don't rant on like this." Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, but uh, I think that's the thinking in 1914. Now, obviously, after the war had been lost, and after all this terrible disaster that uh, overtaken the country, anybody who's got private papers does does his damnedest to destroy them. So there's a long, long list of, uh, of documents which just disappeared. Mm-hmm. I would like to know what happened to the to the documents of the Prussian War Ministry. I suspect they're still in Moscow, but nobody's ever used them. Mm-hmm. And there must be something there. Mm-hmm. Well, you're talking. Sorry, about, I was going to say you're talking yeah. to graduate students after this interview. You should send them. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm actually going to go to Berlin, snuffling this out because mm-hmm. they, there's a there's a very very good German um, German military research thing which has moved to Potsdam. I've just been reading their their uh, their account of the Second World War, which mm-hmm. is magisterial, and they've probably got an idea what's mm-hmm. happened. Mm-hmm. I see. So then, uh, yeah, d- d- to, to put it in in rather colorful terms, then the the Germans were spoiling for a fight and striving for a European empire. Is that correct? I think so, yes. I think you could say that. And, and they would, um, you know, they would, uh, they would uh, rope France in in some form or another, mm-hmm. uh, but more or less. And, I mean, they would, they would say, look, Belgium is an unreal country. It, it always was split between France and the Holy Roman Empire. Let's split it again. I mean, it, you know, it was, Belgium was a sort of useful fiction. And uh, and um, the, you build up a sort of European bloc against the against the British, and of course, by implication, the Americans. Mm-hmm. And so, were they thinking about it when they when they decided they were going to embark on this war to provoke this war? Were they thinking about 1870 and that it would be quick, and that they would simply overcome the Russians and then overcome the French, or vice versa? Yes, and this is another thing that they were. They were they were they were so convinced that it would be a, it would be an open and shut war like Bismarck's wars when it's over in about six weeks. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, how on earth intelligent uh, generals could could have come to that conclusion, given that I mean, any, anybody could tell that cavalry was useless and mm-hmm. that fortresses could be smashed to bits by heavy artillery. Mm-hmm. And how on earth they could come at uh, a judgment like that? But what's curious about it, you know, is it's terribly like 1941 when they attacked the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. I've just been reading about that this afternoon in this magisterial account. Yeah. Here they are, you know, they know they haven't got a war economy which can last even mm-hmm. beyond October 1941. Mm-hmm. They depend on getting Russian resources, but they say, oh, you know, as they said, we'll kick the door in and the house will fall down. Yeah, no, I've read some and of I these. Yeah, I've read some yeah. of these documents myself, the German documents, in in, yeah. in October, really September, October 1941, when they're utterly sure that they've won. Yeah, uh, it's amazing, isn't it? Yeah, no, they, are, they, they believe it is all over. Um, mm. <laughs> it was not all over. The, uh, so uh, one, one, one of the stories that's often told is that, uh, you know, the Germans sent uh, observers to um, the Germans sent observers to the American Civil War and saw what had happened there, which, which was quite a bloody World War I like affair in some ways. But they still felt that they were able, they were going to simply knock the, 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 the Russians out very quickly? And why, why did they think this? I mean, you just said you didn't know, but I just would ask you to speculate a little bit. Um, oh, and, and I think the, 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 the key thing was knocking out France. Mm-hmm. And they seem to think, they seem to have thought that if they you know they go through Belgium that they'll they'll come round us they um, they'll they'll catch the French army uh, they'll trap it again 
against the East, as it were, mm-hmm. more or less as in 1940. Mm-hmm. And, and there's a certain kind of fatalism about it that, you know, we might not bring it off, but it's the only chance we've got to sort of attitude. I think, uh, I mean, it's perfectly true what you say about the Civil War, and, and, but I think we must just have thought, well, these are not real soldiers. They're mere conscripts. In Gettysburg, the, 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 the Confederates didn't even have boots. Mm-hmm. Did yeah. They? Yeah, this kind no. of thing. No, I so I think they don't take it terribly seriously. I'm not too sure about it. I'm, I'm strained beyond what I know about. Yeah, I, 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 I've always wondered about this as well because, of course, you know, hindsight being 2020 and all, you can just sort of look at the disposition of forces and the weapons involved and you can see that um, you know artillery was more or less the queen of the battlefield and remained so throughout the war and that offensive actions of the kind that were undertaken in in you know even 1862 or 1870 or even during the Ottoman Russian campaigns were going to be at least in close quarters and that which they were going to be impossible um, but they they just didn't they did not foresee this in in any way I think I think they were very surprised and this is what you say. They were very surprised when it didn't end very quickly. Yes, I, they, and it's, it's extraordinary to see the, the, you know, the tactics used by the French army. They were utterly suicidal. Mm-hmm. And, and how on earth could they have um, supposed that clumps of infantry charging forward and red trousers shouting hurrah mm-hmm. weren't going to be a prime target even just for a rifle? Yeah. Than, uh, you know, a couple of miles off. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think one, you know, one of the things I teach a class on military history, and I, I, one of the things I say to the students, I don't know if it's correct, but I'd, I'd like to hear your opinion on it, is that they went in with a tactical doctrine that dictated that the goal of offensive operations was to make the other side break. That is, their lines would be disrupted and they would start to retreat. And retreat is a very difficult thing to do under any circumstances. And this is what had happened, I think, in many European campaigns from Napoleon on, that there was a kind of, uh, there was, there was some sort of massive frontal assault and one of the two sides broke. But in this war, nobody, almost nobody ever broke. They simply, they had developed defense in depth. And when the first lines were broken, then there was another line behind them. Yes, and, and every, yes. everybody knew this, and but yes. they, they continued in this way. I, it's, it's astounding mm. to me that they did that. Um, but anyway, to, go, go ahead. No, I was going to say I think some of it is to do with um, with artillery. You know, they 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 lay in something like one or two thousand rounds per gun. Mm-hmm. Uh, shells begun, and they think this is an absolutely munificent um, provision for artillery. Yeah. And you plaster the enemy line with uh, with with these uh, with these hundreds of shells, um, which you know, even as a measure of this, I, I think in the Boer War, the British Army used something like a couple of hundred rounds per shell over about two or three years. Mm-hmm. Rounds per gun, and um, uh, so it must. It, the uh, the idea that you can you can have these primitive tactics must be based on some idea that if you pass to the opposite of the you know, the enemy line with shell, then they'll run away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think I think that's exactly right. And you know, people will often say about the Civil War, for example, that the primary utility of cannon was to frighten the other side. And it certainly is the case that one of these artillery barrages would be tremendously frightening. It makes an extraordinarily big and impressive bang. But, you know, one of the things they discovered very early on is if you dig a deep enough hole, yes. then nothing yes. is going to happen to you, and it's basically all wasted yeah. shell. And yes. I, that, that was sort of... Yeah, it's it's a very confusing it's a very confusing thing in military history because I think it is one of the 
it's one of the places where kind of quasi-cultural explanations, which I'm not a huge fan of myself, kind of come into play. Because in this instance, yeah. things like honor and glory and what a man yeah. should do and four feathers and this other stuff, they seem yeah. to really matter here. Uh, yeah. And whereas you get to World War II and they don't matter at all anymore. People no. are at, no, they just don't matter. And people are, are doing mm. the things what you would expect them to do as rational humans. Um, but here they seem to act, very, which is why I think the economists said that all, all sides uh, fought the uh, fought the fought the war like like lunatics. So let, let's move on to the um, the first stages of the war and the um, the uh, we'll skip the uh, Serbian campaign. Let's uh, the um, the the initial German thrust through Belgium. Um, uh, how how um, how did it bog down? I think it's basically a question of transport, that you're, you're marching troops through autumn heat, through the August heat, which was very hot that, uh, in 1914. You're relying essentially on horse transport. The horses fall ill. They, you, you, um, the, the poor things were eating, if I remember rightly, something like, um, you know, 25, uh, 25 pounds of grain a day. Mm-hmm. As I remember, and you can't uh, you can't supply them with that sort of fodder if you if you're also bringing up guns and shells and all the rest of it. So the, the horses had to had to graze on the side of the road, and they, and they were eating sometimes um, grain which hadn't properly ripened, mm-hmm. which uh, well which in the end killed them. Mm-hmm. So the the Germans were advancing at, the, at an incredible rate, given the given the circumstances. Men marching something like twenty, thirty miles a day in that sort of heat, but they couldn't really keep it up. And I think that was the first thing, where the French are arriving by uh, by railway. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, railways moving very slow, trains moving very slowly, but still troops which are rested and and uh, and which can get out at, at, at the. Sort of Amiens or the or the or the lines northwest of Paris, and they're ready for the poor old dark Germans, who were by the time they reached the outskirts of Paris, they were utterly exhausted. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, the, the, so, so once. Once these, I, I do like what you had to say about the sort of logistics of the war, and these are things that are never brought up. And I think uh, that that, that you, you talk about railway platforms, for example, as a measure of um, as a measure of the ability to move troops. And you also talk about this this business with fodder, which was tremendously important because you're right that, uh, as you say, that that um, cavalry were uh, more or less useless. Yet they expend an extraordinary amount of resources on on these things. It's a little bit like what Americans will often say about. Um, about the German army in the Eastern Campaign in World War II, and uh, said, you know, that I always tell people that I can't remember the figure, but the number of horses that the Germans went in with, that is into into the Soviet Union with, and it's some hu- it's absolutely astounding. They basically walked in and went on horse um, before they got the trains running. So, and I, these are very important things. So, after they bogged down, does it occur to them immediately to um, dig these massive trench complexes, or does this develop over time? I think that developed more or less by accident. Mm-hmm. You know, from right away that they, the Germans discovered that if they, if they dug a hole, they survived. And then the French started digging holes as well, and the British until they finally reached the channel with their holes. Mm-hmm. And then the whole things, then the whole thing becomes more and more elaborate. These trench systems, which um, you know, by 1917 you're dealing with things which are, which are, um, are stretching way back, um, 10, 15 miles mm-hmm. of. Uh, of, of field fortifications of, of extraordinary elaboration. Mm-hmm. I think they hit on it. They hit on it more or less by accident. 
Um, not entirely, because they were all given, the troops were all given trenching tools. In other words, you know, spades. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they, they had known about it, but the actual elaboration of the whole thing with barbed wire and the rest of it came as a bit of a surprise. And it's a funny thing to think that barbed wire wasn't even thought to be a, um, to something with a military purpose. And you, you weren't supposed to confiscate it if, if, uh, if you found a ship carrying barbed wire mm-hmm. from, uh, from the States to, to, to England. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Germans weren't supposed to confiscate that ship if it was carrying barbed wire because it was something that kept cattle out. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's funny. I, you, you know? in the, I was going to say, just as, a, as, as an anecdote, there are, uh, in, um, in the little town where my grandparents uh, lived, there's a museum, and the museum has a, uh, a barbed wire room which has a historical barbed wire of every different kind. Yeah, yeah it's, it's a whole yeah. room of different kinds of barbed wire. Because here, of course, in the United States, it's a way to confine cattle. Yes. <laughs> yes. It didn't yes. occur to us to use it for any – it wasn't used in yes. – I, I don't believe it was used – no, it wasn't, it wasn't used in the Civil War, certainly. And, and uh, no, I, I remember looking at the barbed wire room. Because, you know, it, it yes. actually – it sort of enabled uh, the cattlemen of the, of the Midwest to, to conquer the area. <laughs> but yeah, no, yes. it's it's a, yeah, it's an interesting point. I I, I think. Yeah. So then, after the the first battle of the Marne, then and and the the um the the, the Germans are stopped. A, a question which just occurred to me, and and uh, I just I'd like to hear your speculation on this is is that it wasn't clear to them at all that 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 that, that the war was a, a stalemate at that point. And did they make any attempt at all to put out diplomatic feelers, or were they still going for broke? They're, they're really going for broke, but they did, after a bit, send a, send a message to the Russians through the brother-in-law of the Tsaritsa, mm-hmm. who's the Grand Duke of Hesse, I think. They they sent a message saying, "Look, this is this is sort of silly. We can we can uh, we can divide things between us." Mm-hmm. And they, the Russians just threw it into the wastepaper basket. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I see. Now. Yeah. I was going to say, let's turn actually to the Eastern Front. And the, now, the Germans did, did, did quite well on the Eastern Front in a, in a battle that's sometimes called the Battle of, of Tannenberg. But it, isn't that right? The battle of, am I wrong about that? Yes. No, no, yeah, that's right. Yes, that's right. Uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about that. The war in the East was actually, it was, at least in its initial phases, quite different than the war in the West, wasn't it? Yes, it was. And, you know, I mean, the, the first thing is, is that, uh, quite paradoxically, the Russians didn't have, um, didn't have the enormous army that, uh, that everybody expected them to have. They had a population of 180 million. Mm-hmm. And they should have been able to field, uh, well, I don't know, 10, 15 million men right away out on, uh, on usual principles. But it was still quite a poor country and they couldn't feed the men. And the and the transport system was still was still um, not quite advanced enough to to uh, to supply more than well you know more than the sort of army that they put in which was in the end um, it was uh, in the end they had five million trained men mm-hmm. they they had a wonderful time with the poor old Russians with uh, the business of universal uh, liability to conscription because they they decreed in 1874 that it's it's a sort of national good if you take these young peasants at age 20 and put them in the army for three years to make them literate and all this sort of thing and give them national consciousness. And then they discovered they didn't have the money for it. So they drew up uh, elaborate exemption things, you know, the incredibly high physical standards. And uh, they exempted various religious minorities like the Mennonites or, and I think the Laps as well. They wouldn't conscript. Uh, they didn't conscript Muslims either. I think 
Anyway, they they conscripted incredibly generously, and the and the uh, the biggest uh, exemption thing was um, was if you were a breadwinner. In other words, if you were married. Mm-hmm. Now, on the on the 31st of July, 1914, as mobilisation was declared, two million peasants got married. <laughs> so I remember I remember seeing this statistic in the Hoover Institution in uh, in Stanford. The, the war ministry scratched its scratched its head ponderously and thought, well, why are these characters getting married like this? Mm-hmm. And finally decided it was because they felt felt they had a patriotic duty to produce children. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the, the Russians were were a bit short of men, and the, the front is, of course, what uh, twice as long as the Western Front. So there are great wide open spaces where actually even cattle were grazing. Mm-hmm. And it's possible for 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 the Germans to find a, an empty space and move into it. Mm-hmm. What you then do when you've moved into it, when you find that you're lacking water and that you can't feed your horses and you can't find the enemy flying from there are no roads and all this kind of thing, that's another matter. But it did mean that the Eastern Front was at least mobile in a way that the Western Front wasn't. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I see. So then, uh, so so as of 1915, uh, the, the fronts in, uh, in in both the east and the west had uh, stabilized, um, and uh, at some point the uh, the British decide uh, that they are going to invade uh, Turkey. Um, uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about the Gallipoli campaign then, which is which is very peculiar. Yes, it's lessons of history got yeah, wrong. Yeah, really, yeah, it is. You know, you're you're uh, you're sitting in London. You can see the Western Front, and it's it's uh, you can't really move on that. Um, the the East, well, there are uh, there's some sort of promise there, but perhaps if you if you if you link up with the Russians through the Black Sea, you'll be able to supply the Russians with something or other. Mm-hmm. And then the main thing was, I think they 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 all thought that uh, by analogy with Napoleon, they, that if they uh, if they attack Turkey, then it's the equivalent of attacking Spain in the mm-hmm. Napoleonic Wars. That you can supply your army by sea much more efficiently than the the enemy can supply his overland, mm-hmm. and you can um, you can land more or less at will on any part of the the uh, the Turkish um, the, the Turkish shore. And they, and you, you're bound to get some way. And then the other thing was that everybody, I mean, it is astonishing when you look at it how very few people in, on the British side actually said that they, the, 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 the Turks had some stuffing in them. And if they'd looked at the results of the Balkan Wars, they'd have seen that after the initial disasters, the, the Turks did actually hold mm-hmm. and, um, and, and, and reconquered, uh, reconquered Thrace. They'd done badly in the Balkan Wars because they, the empire was so scattered that it was impossible to defend it properly. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, in the defensive, uh, you know, Johnny Turk, as the British knew him, was uh, was pretty good. Mm-hmm. And there were only two people in the whole British army, as far as I can see, who actually said this thing is a mistake. The first was an interesting man who uh, called Aubrey Herbert, who is oddly enough the grandfather of my son's godmother. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a curious coincidence. And he he he'd been all around the Ottoman Empire and spoke all the languages and 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 he uh, I mean he's quite well connected in London. And he said, look, this is silly. Don't do this. You 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 get sucked into something awful. And the other man was it was a was a decent old colonel called Doughty Wiley who'd been a who'd been a military consul, which was a sort of early effort at peacekeeping in eastern Anatolia. 
and he'd, uh, he'd seen the Turks at close quarters since 1909. He'd actually volunteered for their, their equivalent of the Red Cross, the Red Crescent. They gave him a gong. Mm-hmm. And, and he, was, uh, he was put onto Ian Hamilton's staff as an advisor and uh, wandered ashore at uh, Cape Ellis with, wearing, carrying a stick. He said, I'm not going to shoot any Turks. They shot him in his head. <laughs> 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 but he, he was a huge piece to his soul. He was the only other one who said this is a terrible mistake. Mm-hmm. So the British wander in with a, with a kind of ludicrous overconfidence. They did the same with, um, you know, the other end of the Ottoman Empire in Basra, mm-hmm. when the Indian army landed at the, at the bottom end of the Tigris and marched up and lost a division at Kutalamara in, in May 1916. Mm-hmm. Extraordinary, you know, kind of crazy overconfidence that, they, that the Turks will collapse, and that's precisely what they did not do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's interesting because there's a, there's a, uh, there's a. <laughs> I, again, I'm kind of a a novice historian of World War II, and I, and I know that Churchill, Churchill would go on and on about the soft underbelly of Europe and how important it was to invade Greece. And uh, I, I, so this notion that somehow the southern approach to defeating Germany was the way to go, it, it was, it was it, even, even Gallipoli didn't convince the British that this was not really quite the right uh, road to Berlin. So it, it, it continued. What, did, what, did Chir- no. what was Churchill's role in any of this? I don't know. Oh, Churchill was pushing for it. He he, he didn't like these uh, these big blundering offensives on the Western Front at all. Mm-hmm. He could see there was something wrong with it. And after all, he was an imperialist, and the British did walk off with a good part of the Ottoman suppression yeah. in 1918-19. And Churchill was a good old imperialist. It's it's important to remember that about him. No, wasn't that you know? Have you seen Andrew Roberts's book called Masters and Commandos? No, I haven't. It's worth having a look at that, but the, you know, about the dissensions that went on about the Mediterranean strategy in um, yeah. in uh, 42, 43, because the the British were themselves divided about it. Yeah. And uh, I think Alan Brooke regarded the idea of landing in Greece as lunacy. Yeah. And Italy wasn't terribly hot either. I mean, that, there the Americans were absolutely right. Uh-huh. It's a very good book, I thought. Yeah. No, I would like to read it. I think that Churchill is one of the most, mis- at least in the American um, context, Churchill is one of the most misunderstood. Uh, figures imaginable because here of course he's lionized for all kinds of reasons I mean people think that he's uh, you know because they only they only think about basically uh, you know the the uh, the, the the business with Hitler they the, Churchill's career prior to that moment is is largely forgotten in the United States and uh, uh, <laughs> a friend of mine likes to say that Churchill was wrong about everything and right about one thing and we only remember the one thing he was right about um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm afraid that's about right yeah. isn't it about right and he was very right yeah. about one thing so yes. yeah no that's exactly right so um so then uh, the, the war is at stalemate in 1915 and then there's a series of these very bloody offensives um I, I can't even remember all of them. Uh, uh, Ypres is the f- next one, or is it Verdun? I can't really remember. Um, and, and, and it was the French attacks in, yeah, in uh, Champagne. Yeah, why don't, maybe you could talk a little bit about those. Well, they, oh dear, oh dear, poor old France, poor old France. You know, as I, uh, you know, as I, as I wander around teaching in Turkey, I. I ask them often enough, you know, class, how many of you can do French? Because French used to be the second language here. Mm-hmm. You know, you're lucky if you get two people in a, in a big class who can still do French. And mm-hmm. I suppose you, you have to take the, you know, the decline of France from those terrible attempts in 1915 to, to throw the Germans out at, at bayonet point. And they lost, they lost terribly heavily in 1915 with these, um, with these these crude offensives against um, you know 
know, trying to throw the Germans out of out of the country. Mm-hmm. And you know, that, I mean, you can. It's it's it's. A, you know, when you think what a great country France is, it's it's almost unbearable to think of the way the way that generation was thrown away. Mm-hmm. And it's specifically, really, in 1915. That's that's when. They kept trying again and again and again with very modest British help to, mm-hmm. to, to do it. And they run into the awful problems that, well, you know, as you said, that after after you've wiped out one front, front line, there's another front line behind it. Mm-hmm. So you stumble forward and, um, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you, you, you actually- lose... I was going to say, you yep. actually, you, you, the, 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 the one, you know, again, the, the thing that people marvel upon, you know, after they've studied World War II a little bit is the is the... Is a sort of lack of creative tactical thinking uh, involved, um, but but you do mention a couple of things, and you have a one unlikely hero that I'd like to Brusilla, of which who I'd like to talk about in a second. But the, the, maybe you could talk a little bit about the invention of the walking or creeping barrage, because that does seem to have been a, a re- reasonably effective tactic in at least moving several hundred yards. I, yes, I think this was this was a French invention that they'd um, they'd worked out. But if you um, if, if you can, if the question is, if you can walk your barrage forward mm-hmm. in, uh, in such a way that you, you you rain shell down on the the enemy reserve line when you're taking his first line, mm-hmm. then it means you can occupy the second line as well. Mm-hmm. Then you it, it it means it means extraordinary organisation on the part of the of, of the artillery, which was very very difficult because guns would drop shells really rather wildly they they weren't standardized and if the wind was in the wrong in the wrong sort of way then you you couldn't really do it but as a principle the 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 creeping barrage was a very good one the germans picked it up and became extremely proficient at it yeah one of the things i'm sorry to interrupt but one of the things you mentioned actually that i think is an important point i didn't know this but i sort of suspected is that it's precisely that these guns though they're obviously machine tooled they all had to be individually ranged because they they were all unique. Not one would not operate exactly like anybody who spent any time with 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 rifles knows this. That every rifle has mm. to be it has to be ranged on its own. And the, I guess the Germans yes. did this. They actually took their big guns out and ranged them, and so yes. they had firing tables for every gun. Yes, which is that's very German. <laughs> but, it's very German, isn't it? Yeah, it yeah, is it, very German. <laughs> yeah, but it was a heck of a good idea. Yeah. Yes, it was. It was. It meant you know when the when the artillery really came into its own in 1918, there was nobody to beat them. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's interesting. So then another another innovation concerning artillery was um, the uh, was the the uh, the use of uh, airplanes for spotting targets. And wh- why was this important? Um, well, you, if you can if you can work out a gun position, then you you know you can uh, you can you can you can uh, train your own gun at it and, mm-hmm. and wipe it out. And they later on, so aircraft became more and more important as time went on, and then of course they were they were able to fly over the heads of attacking infantry. And mm-hmm. So by 1918, you get something like the the um, the, the principles of 1940 coming in, where mm-hmm. there will be tanks moving forward, there will be Aircraft keep forcing the enemy to keep his uh, to keep his head down, mm-hmm. and infantry following the tanks. And mm-hmm. the French had it worked out quite well in 1918. Mm-hmm. These three elements and an anticipation of 1940, mm-hmm. and the, the aircraft became more and more and more important in that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I I I see just what you mean. The the one one of the things that interested me in the book was was precisely that uh, the, the way to get tactical 
surprise was, in fact, not to fire spotting rounds, uh, not to send uh, troops to uh, reconnoiter, but, in, in fact, send planes to get grid coordinates, um, yes. dial yes. the grid coordinates in, and then just start. Yes. Uh, yeah. And or even, or even better was to they they had some method which I never quite understood, which was sound ranging. They could work out uh, they could work out by the by the sound waves of a of a of a, of a round yes. of shell right. where the gun was, and they could simply mark a cross on a gradient. Say fire at that. Yeah. You know what? The American genius. Yeah. In the uh, in the Iraq War, th- this technique has been perfected with radar. So that I know that in the first Iraq War and in the second Iraq War, the United States—I I was told this by an artillery captain actually—that um, any time the Iraqis fired a shell, we, we, we the, the United States, knew, knew exactly where that gun was within yes. seconds. Yeah, yeah. Um, yes. and yes. it didn't fire any more shells, if you know what no. I mean. Uh, no. So, so yeah, no, that, that's very, so. Talk a little bit about this unlikely, you know, because as a, as a Russian historian, Brusilov, he is not, um, you know, you don't really hear a lot about him, at least uh, nothing very positive. But in your uh, in your estimation, he's he's a sort of a I guess genius might be too strong a word, but he definitely <laughs> he definitely figured something out that other people did not. Why don't you talk a little about that? Um, well, it, and it is just such a relief to find a you know to find a general with a brain. To be honest, at that time, um, I mean, I, th- I think we're we're uh, we're a bit unfair generally to the generals because they were facing an awful problem, but some of them did um, did respond to it quite creatively, and I think Brusilov did. Um, it's uh, he could see that look, you can break through, but then your problem comes uh, that you can't move your troops up because they're moving even if they're not fired at, they're moving at the rate of, of two miles an hour over muddy terrain with um, carrying the equivalent of uh, well, I worked out it's about twice what you're allowed to put on an aircraft mm-hmm. that they had to carry so. They're not going to get very far if they, in, in those circumstances, even if you have nothing in front of you. What you've got to do is to disrupt the enemy reserves. And he got the key to that because he said you must attack on a wide front and in several places at the same time. Mm-hmm. Then the enemy will not know what to do with his reserves and you've got the chance then to exploit your breakthrough, mm-hmm. which they did in 1916. The interesting thing was, I mean, of course it was against the Austrians and the Austrians in 1916 were were, were dealing with a very, very varied, varied army in which um, quite a number of the Czech troops and I think a lot of the Ukrainian ones were not particularly keen on fighting the war, but there are ways of dealing with that kind of demoralization, and the Germans were usually quite good at it once they moved in. So I don't think the cause of it is just that the Austrians wanted to give up. I mean, it's not it's uh, it's not as simple as that. Brusilov had, had 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 guessed the method that was eventually going to win the war when it was applied in 1918 by Foch. He said, you know, you attack here, you attack there, you attack there, then you stop. And the enemy will bring in his reserves. They're in the wrong place. So you attack somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And then the enemy have to put their reserves into the trains and chug them along. And at the end, in 1918, about half the German army was spending its entire time in trains, mm-hmm. yeah, moving very slowly, eating buns. It's a very demoralizing way to fight a war. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I thought that was a remarkable statistic because, yeah, they didn't really know what to do because, you know, it's, it's in a certain sense that the Allies were, um, were, were coming at them in too many different directions. So that's, that's one, one of the things that has always confused me, and if someone were to ask me today, you know, how did World War one end, I uh, 
<laughs> I would think back to All Quiet in the Western Front and say the hero was killed. Um, no, the, I, 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 I really don't know. I, 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 I never have figured out exactly how the war ceased. And so maybe you could take us through the last few months. It, it is a very good question, isn't it? I mean, if you think how the Germans fought on in circumstances which must have, uh, they must have seen that this thing is utterly hopeless, you know, with the, the Russians over the Oder and the, and the Americans on the Rhine and mm. so on, and their cities being knocked to smithereens. Mm. How on earth the Germans went on fighting like that at the end of the war, whereas in 1918 they, they threw their hand in. Yeah. Um, Ludendorff says in his memoirs that, that at a certain point it was just irresponsible to go on fighting the war because it was obvious what was going to happen. And uh, we, we just had to get the, you know, the best terms we could. Uh, he, he says that in his memoirs, and I think that's, that's on the whole true. That after all, I mean, it was a different Germany. They weren't, um, they weren't monsters at all, whereas the Nazis obviously were. Mm -hmm. And uh, so they were, um, you know, they were. They, at some point, um, a sense of reason did take over in the, in the summer of 1918, when you can see them thinking, well. You know, we've lost. We're going to have to find the best terms possible. Of course, it took time to recognize that and mm -hmm. to sort out the politics of it. But in the end, they, it, um, it, it's what I suppose it's when the British broke through at Anya on mm -hmm. the 8th of August, 1918. Ludendorff said, you know, that's that. And then, of course, it spreads to the, the soldiers get the idea. And, they, and then there are the, um, you know, there's, there's, after all, the revolutionary element in, in Berlin. They, you know, those, um, what were they called, the revolutionary opleiter, you know, the, the shop stewards who are, are thinking quite seriously of, a, of a, well, of a Russian revolution. Mm -hmm. And then possibly also, you know, the, the effect of, of that quite substantial uh, occupation army in the east, mm -hmm. which was really wondering what the earth it was doing occupying, uh, occupying the Ukraine at the time. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, plus, the, plus the, 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 you know, the economic collapse was quite serious. The railways were ceasing to work and mm -hmm. potatoes weren't being delivered to the working class wives in Berlin. And then there's finally this mad thing of, of, the, of the Navy saying, right, time for one last final charge at the mm -hmm. Thames, mm -hmm. which, of course, causes the, the naval mutiny, which brought the whole thing down. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, one thing I always wondered, sort of in terms of grand strategy, is that, in, in a certain sense, that, you know, by, um, you know, by, by 19, sort of late 1917, uh, the, or early 1918, that the, the German strategy had, in a peculiar sense, uh, succeeded because the Russians were knocked out of the war. And they could turn their attention to the West, and yet that strategy itself proved to be flawed. Um, and I guess the simple explanation would be that the Americans showed up. Is that how much of that does? How much of the appearance of the Americans explains the end of the war? One hundred percent. Yeah, no, I think so too. Yeah, I think so too. And you say, you know, actually, you say something rather surprising. I didn't know. You say the Americans acquitted themselves pretty well at first, and I, you know, the the, the word on the street over here is that uh, we we every time we fight the Germans, we we lose until they lose. <laughs> if you see what I mean. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think to start off with, they, you know, various mistakes were made. A.J.P. Taylor is some figure somewhere about. Uh, 
But uh, you know, the Americans insisted on being trained in the methods of 1914, mm-hmm. and and uh, and forget and and forgetting that uh, you know, 1917 had happened. Mm-hmm. And there's another statistic I read somewhere that the American soldiers were trained in firing rifles, and the and the rifle by 1918 was more or less as obsolete as mm-hmm. I mean as a, as a claymore in the mm-hmm. 1745 rebellion in Scotland. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was just was not a war-winning weapon. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm not too sure about that. There's a lot of things I want to know about the American Army. Yeah, I don't, you know, again, I'm, I'm not, uh, it's funny because in the United States, we, people, there are a lot of books, and I've actually interviewed people uh, about World War One, but it tends to be, uh, and, and this is not to disparage these themes at all, but they tend to be social historical themes like, uh, you know, women's liberation during World War One, or, uh, you know, black soldiers during World War One, or sort of th- yes. th- things that are, that are, um, uh, that are, yeah. that are politically interesting today, but I yeah. think that in terms of, uh, actual, I, I'm sure that some military historians are going to contact me about this, but I think in, ter- <laughs> <laughs> I, th- I think in terms of uh, you know books about the, the performance of the American military in World War One, I, I don't, I can't really think of any yeah. very good ones. But I, again, I, I could be totally I, wrong. I did read a very good biography of MacArthur, mm-hmm. which was terribly good on his uh, on his generalship in 1917. You know how he'd go down to the barbed uh-huh. wire himself and look yeah. at it, and yeah. the sort of thing that generals tended not to do. Yeah, he was rather impressive. Yeah, well, he was an impressive figure. Uh, in, flawed but impressive. Uh, can't that be said yeah. of all of us? Really flawed but impressive. The um, <laughs> I'm rather less impressive, more 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 flawed. The, um, the, the I did I did want to uh, you know that that one of the things you say at the end of the book, um, you know, it's it's almost hard to believe, and that is that there were a considerable number of people in Germany at the end of the war that felt the Germans didn't really lose. Uh, maybe you could say a few words about that opinion and, and why we think that today. What did they say? How did they? It seemed obvious they lost. At least, it does in hindsight. But yeah, well, yes, but they were. I mean, after all, they were, they were. They were all over the Ukraine at the time, and the, the evacuation of the German army in the east was quite a was was, was quite a doing. They, they hadn't actually been invaded at all. Mm-hmm. The tiny little bits of Alsace, I think, was. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, and they, they were still in occupation of Brussels and all that sort of thing, and then they all of a sudden, you know, if you're if you're a kind of respectable German, you see these um, you see these uh, mutinous sailors, Bolshevik um, Bolshevik banderols, and you see the you see the trade unions pouring out onto the streets in Berlin. You think, well, we've been stabbed in the back mm-hmm. by these characters. Curious little example of it. You, do you remember the man, the the general, the general von Fritsch, who was sacked mm-hmm. by who was sacked by Hitler on a on a trumped up charge of homosexuality? Mm-hmm. Now you might have thought that he he um, he would have it in for the Nazis. Apparently he wrote a private letter not long afterwards saying that, well, now Hitler's done very well with dealing with the workers, mm-hmm. but um, but and he's got some of the way dealing with the Jews who are really an enemy. But the thing he's really got to get at is the Catholic Church, <laughs> old lunatic. Yeah. And I think a lot of Germans, in their despair, thought like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's really quite it's really quite remarkable because they, they were so utterly defeated. Was it was it a mistake? You know, I, I hate to ask this question because it, uh, it's not exactly historical. But was it a mistake not to um, not to occupy Germany after the war? Oh, I think so. Yes, I think so. Looking back on it, I mean, either you either you treat Germany as they treated France in 1814-15, you say, right, you know, produce your Talleyrand, we'll deal with you as a as a power on the same level as us. You just lost the war. That's all. And either you do that, or damn, sorry, that's my alarm clock for some reason. Can I turn it off? Yeah, please do. It's time to get up.
hope you can edit that out. No, it's not a problem. I did that. It's, it's, my, my cleaning lady was here this morning. She must have she must have dusted it in the wrong way. It's okay. <laughs> so charming. Uh, leave those charming little things in. It shows that they're live. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, so no. Uh, um, well, yes. I mean, short of I mean, you're treating Germany the way she was treated—that uh, that you leave her independent and then you and then you load her with this uh, with this what looks like a vicious peace treaty, mm-hmm. especially the reparations, and and then you know the occupation of the Ruhr in 1923, mm-hmm. the, the big inflation, and all that. It's mm-hmm. I mean, it was all well said about it. That if you uh, I mean, if you treat a dog like this and then you suddenly let it off the off the leash. Then don't be surprised if it goes straight to your throat. Yeah, that's, did Orwell really say that? Yes, somewhere. Uh, yeah. that guy, Orwell said a lot of good he things. He did really say a lot of good things. Yeah, he's mm. not Orwell. He's just a, an mm. end, end, he's in he's in a sort of endless well of, of yes. interesting little statements. So, yes. uh, Norman Stone, we have taken up a huge amount of your time, and I know that you have graduate students waiting, and I'm against making graduate students wait. I just want to go on the record there. I'm not, I'm not be so, I'll tell them that. Yes, right. So anyway, I, I want to thank you very much for being on the, the show. The book is World well, War I, a, a Short History, and, and um, I, I recommend everyone read it. I I will be using it in a class that I'm um, going to teach, this military history class, because I think it's just a terrific read. Have you ever read, by, by the way, there, there's a there's a book called, uh, it's by a, you know, I can't remember the name of it. I, I think it's by a, it's by a German um, journalist historian called The Meaning of Hitler. Have you well, that's Sebastian Hafner. Yeah, yeah, it is, actually. Have you read yeah. this book? I, I, your book yes, reminded I me of his book. I love that book. Yeah, he's I, very good. I absolutely love that book. Yes, and he's your very, book very reminded good. me of that. And I, you know, I just yeah. thought it is Sebastian Hafner. That's right. So I use that book mm-hmm. as well. So anyway, I'll use your book and his book. So in any event, thank you very much for being on the show. Let me ask our traditional final question, and that is, what is your next project? What are you working on now? Well, I think well, what I'm on the planet to do is to write about Russia and Turkey. Mm-hmm. So I've started that. It's it's um, you know, nobody's ever really done it, mm-hmm. and it's 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 a, it's a wonderful subject. It's a big topic. It's a big topic. Yeah, no, yeah it's, it is. It's, it's, and I hope I've still got enough steam in me to do it. I'm sure that you do. And when you're done, <laughs> and when you're done with the first volume of it, what I should review many volumes, you um uh, please contact us, and we'll have you on the show again. Okay. Wonderful. I thoroughly enjoyed that. Thank you. All right, Norman. Thanks very much. Take care now. Thanks. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye. You've been listening to an interview with Norman Stone about his new book, World War One: A Short History. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week. Thank you.